the feeling that you've been here before. This is an emergency transmission from TV Cream. Hello, I'm Graham and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, I send someone a link to an old TV show and then once they've watched it, I call them up to find out what they made of it. Now, today I'm talking to Roger Highfield, the science director at the Science Museum. And Roger, I understand you're safely indoors. Well, where are you safely indoors? I'm ensconced in my home in Greenwich, south-east London. Uh, and Roger, the, uh, the video link I sent you was for episode one of the children's TV series Time Slip. <laughs> first aired in the ATV region on Monday the 28th of September 1970. Now, I got the impression when I sent you this link, um, you weren't very familiar with the show. I mean, what was your reaction to, to seeing this link arrive? Well, I was really surprised, actually, because I completely loved sci-fi at that time. You know, I was fired up by the Apollo moon landing in 69 when I was in short trousers, 11 years old, and I, I just lapped up the likes of Doctor Who and Star Trek and so on. Um, and yet, I, I, it, this one com- time slip completely passed me by, which is a bit of a surprise. Um, I was incarcerated in a horrible English boarding school where we were rationed to one dose of Star Trek uh, re- reruns each week. It was a real delight when you sent over the clip because it was a sort of treat that I'd missed all those years ago. Now, the link to uh, the episode is included in the podcast details, but for those who maybe are just too busy or don't fancy clicking on it, can you briefly talk us through what happens in this episode? And that's what this new series, Time Slip, is all about. Children projecting themselves forwards and backwards in time. Well, it's... Um introduced by Peter Fairley. Have you ever had the feeling that you've been here before? Who I was familiar with at the time as ITN's science editor. And yet everyone tells you that you can't have been. Uh, you know, who talked us through the Apollo moon landings. And I was actually quite surprised by that, that you've got a, um, a journalist introducing it, talking about whether the mind can go forward or backwards in time and deja vu, no. slightly muddling things up by alluding to a, a new, new theory, theory and how today's science fiction turns into tomorrow's, tomorrow's science, science fact. fact. Uh, I wasn't quite sure what on earth he was re- referring to. Um, and then it, the, the wrong end of time, it opens with a kind of spooky, abandoned naval base from the Second World War. Uh, we see a girl disappear, presumably into the time slip. Then we get various characters introduced, and the, the central ones are Liz and Simon. Who? Huh? Simon! Uh, Simon's mother's died recently, and he's staying with Liz's family. It's going to be a fair holiday, there's only him for company. All alone in the English countryside. Alone, alone, all, all alone. Alone on a wide, wide sea. Um, you find that her father, uh, this Liz's father, Frank, has got a link with the mysterious base, as does another character. You've got this dapper, pipe-smoking chap called Trainer. Ah, Mr Trainer, been for a tramp? Uh, yes, yes. Up over the hills. Lovely weather for it. Yes, as long as it holds up. Mm. Who was um, a commanding officer there. Very portentous music, really kind of da-da-da music. Then, of course, you've got these characters. They end up next to the base. Cue strange sounds and whoops. 
They slip into the time slip. Into darkness. And clearly they've been transported somehow back to World War II. Um, they end up being arrested. What do you think you're playing at? I don't move. By the Brits in that base. Honest to Pete, sometimes I wonder who we are fighting in this war. They get a glimpse of high-tech kit. Uh, and they see they're on that base, they're working on da 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 radar. What? It's radar they're working on. Uh, you get a sense that Liz's mum is telepathic or something like that. What well, was that you were muttering anyway? Sounded like a foreign language. Foreign language? Yeah. Almost like German. German? I can't speak German. And then that first episode ends with the Germans taking over the base. And the revelation that they're being detained by Liz's younger father. I mean, he said his name was Frank Skinner, but, but that's my father's name. Who turns out to be a young naval recruit. And then da-da-da, end of that episode. I was actually quite mm. gripped by it. Uh, it was quite mm. slow-moving, obviously, by, by modern standards. But uh, I, th I thought it was um, pretty enjoyable. I was tempted to watch the next one. But let's rewind then to uh, Peter Fairley at the start. Have you ever had the feeling that you've been here before? I mean, it's quite a shockingly strange start, isn't it? It almost has the cadence of a party political broadcast. Why do you think the producers wanted to kind of start with this assertion of hard science? I mean, it has puzzled me, because if I was Peter Fairley, I'd definitely be of, of two minds about introducing uh, a kid's sci-fi programme. And actually, when you listen carefully to what he says, um, he's trying to say two things at once, that somehow we're all familiar with deja vu and the mind can go forwards or backwards in time. So he seems to be saying that whatever happens in terms of the time slip, it's all in the mind and it's not real. But then he talks about a new theory. And actually, it's, to me, it's completely unclear what new theory he's referring to, although mm. I think what's fascinating is that um, uh, real-world science struggles with time travel because, um, for various technical reasons, I mean, for example, a lot of theories don't care whether time runs forward or runs backwards. And if you play around with Einstein's greatest achievement, um, his theory of general relativity, you can come up with scenarios for time travel. Scientists dislike time travel because um, it destroys causality. And by that I mean, you know, the famous example is the grandmother or the grandfather paradox. You travel back in time, you kill your grandfather or your grandmother, therefore how could you have been born in the first place to travel back in time, and you know, and so on and so forth. So you've got people like the late, great Stephen Hawking just, just trying to ban time travel with a chronology protection conjecture. Um, but uh, in reality, what's fascinating about real-world science is it, 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 there is a grudging acceptance. There might be time travel, and there are other scenarios to do with many worlds, theories, and so on. Um, I think you can just about get away with saying that um, there, there might be something scientific here going on. Um, this is funny because um, you, you've almost preempted one of my questions, which was I was going to ask you, what would you have said if you had been Peter and you had been approached to, to record an intro for Time Slip? That almost was uh, a, perhaps a more apt intro because I'm not sure whether uh, Peter has sold 
the producers of the show a pup in what he says, or if they've sold him a pup by asking him to do something which is kind of impossible. I, I think he, he clearly doesn't quite know what to say. And his opening statements seem to just write it off as, um, a, you know, something to do with the mind. And actually, um, there are some really interesting um, illusions, temporal illusions. There's this famous one where if you look up at the second hand of the clock, it seems to take longer than a second to tick. Um, because of the movement of the eyes, the brain edits out that blurriness, takes you back to where your eyes started moving. And so actually you really do perceive longer than a second. So actually there is a real world bit of science in that, but it's not going to take you back to an air base, uh, sorry, a naval base in World War II. Um, I, so I would have said, um, you know, interestingly, uh, although scientists sort of, their, their visceral reaction based on causality would say time travel really shouldn't be allowed, annoyingly, um, it seems to be allowed if you fiddle around with, with the equations of general relativity and things like that. And so this is one speculative glimpse of where this, uh, where this understanding might be taking us. The, um, the show's producer was Ruth Boswell, who was kind of a powerhouse, I think, of uh, ITV children's drama. And it, um, my understanding is that she was asked to come up with a kind of a Doctor Who variant, and she was keen to ground her variant in proper science and, and actually make it a bit more kind of... Uh, suburban, realistic. Apparently it was influenced by a 1927 work uh, by J.W. Dunn called An Experiment with Time, which posited a theory called serialism, saying that our unconscious mind could witness future events on our own time stream. Now, has J.W. Dunn, forgive my ignorance, I'm assuming, is he a lost name in science? Presumably he isn't someone that... Um, people look back at his work now and think, gosh, he, you know, serialism, he really came up with something there. I think back in the 20s, you know, you've got to realise that, um, you know, we were just beginning to understand the implications of general relativity. We were just beginning to understand the implications of quantum theory. Um, we hadn't ruled out um, things like telekinesis and so on. And even the great Alan Turing... Um, you know, who's really the father of artificial intelligence and so on. You can see even he, he has a famous uh, paper that, that he wrote about artificial intelligence where he's sort of uh, intrigued by some of these uh, findings. So I, I think at that time, um, there was definitely a lot of interest in, in, in the, the possibilities of the mind. But I think from the, looking at it in 2020, um, it, it is complete cobblers, of course. <laughs> is déjà vu something that vexes scientists today as a phenomena? Well, I, I think once you talk about subjective impressions, then actually um, what modern science tells you is it, it's extraordinary the, the dislocation between the reality you perceive and the real reality out there. If you say the brain's got... Um, uh, the, the capacity to take you to strange new places and, and play around with, with reality. Yes, it really does, and it's doing it every moment of the day. Yes, I don't think we ought to stay here any longer. Why not? Because it's a bit, well, odd. Well, let's talk about then the two, the two leads who were, as you mentioned, the two kind of teenagers, Liz, who's played by Cheryl Burfield, and Simon, who's played by... Spencer Banks and certainly in this first episode anyway they have quite a nice ambivalent relationship don't they they're sort of thrown together she's not that keen on him um, 
And there is a bit where she says... Oh, what's the matter with you? It's been half your life reading books, but it doesn't mean you have to be such a creep, does it? <laughs> did you like that? I did like that. And I, obviously yeah. I could see where it was going to go because I'm assuming they will end up, um, you know, great mates and, mm. and so on. But it's a classic setup. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I felt that that was... It's, it, it was kind of nice to see a real investment in uh, in the characters that, that was going to pl- pay off in, in coming um, episodes. How old would you have been then when this aired? So this is 1970. Um, so I would have been 12 years old. Uh, I think I would have lapped it up, actually. Would you have identified, and forgive me, I'm not trying to stereotype you here, Roger, because your background, would you have identified, though, with Simon? I certainly would, and probably still do. De- yeah, definitely. I was a bit of a nerdy kid, collecting butterflies and taking uh-huh. things apart and completely obsessed by the Apollo uh, moon landings, just couldn't get enough of it. So we've uh, talked about Simon, then there's Liz, and actually I think there is a, a gender divide in the story. Um, I think all the men in it, so we have Simon who who has kind of um, knowledgeable in a kind of an academic way, we have Liz's dad, Frank, who clearly is an able man. He's, you know, we see him fixing things all the time. Oh, this stove's filthy. Why don't you give me a hand, eh? You clean that for me, huh? There's Dennis Quilly who plays trainer. Yes, your wife was telling me she didn't want to stay in St. Oswald. Well, I just gathered it from something she said. Who is... Well, we'll talk a little more about him in, in a minute, but he's certainly a very kind of knowledgeable fellow. And then we have Liz... <laughs> Why doesn't he know it's Mr. Trainer from the hotel? ...who is emotional. We have Liz's mum. But Frank remembered St. Oswald as being very quiet and peaceful, even during the war. Very quiet indeed. And it seems that in the show that the women kind of intuit information and the emotional temperature of things and all the fellas are steeped in a kind of a knowable knowledge. There's a stereotype there of the the women having a more emotional uh, centre than the men. Um, So let's talk about uh, Trainer then, Dennis Quilly's Trainer. He's my favourite character in Time Slip. Um, And, I mean, he's a character who through the series goes through a few kind of transformations. He reminds me, though, in this episode, he's a little he's a little bit of Poirot in that he's always present in the background of scenes, kind of noting what's going on, and, and uh, it's almost like he's jotting things down in his brain and taking in information. Me? Oh, I've got an inquiring mind, didn't you know, Mr Bradley? From this episode, and I know that this is the only episode you've seen of it, do you feel he's a benevolent or a malevolent figure? Well, he's clearly central to the story, as, as it becomes mm. clear... But he's running that mysterious naval base at the end. What? You're Mr. Trainer from the hotel. How do you know my name? He seems in control. You know, one of those classic uh, uh, military types. Um, But, of course, you, you feel that he's got all the answers to the questions that are being posed in the series, that somehow if you could sit him down and and interrogate him, um, you'd find out what on earth is going on. Sonny, I'm the one who's in the dark. That's a great, you know, establishing uh, first episode in that you're left with all these questions that you want answered. Were you surprised then at the scene? Because just to make it clear that, um, you know, we meet all the characters in 1970, the present day, uh, and then... Uh, Liz and Simon go through the time slip back to 1940 and there's a little reveal, sort of, I think, maybe in part two, where we see that Trainer is also there in 1940, obviously a 30 years younger Trainer. 
I remember when I watched that, I was quite taken by that. I thought that that was neat that, that there's this guy who's in both time streams and clearly is cognizant in 1970 of what happened. Were you surprised by that or did you see that coming? The fact that Trainer uh, is this sort of dapper character at the start and then suddenly um, you can tell that he's running this mysterious uh, base and the sort of reveal towards the end of the episode definitely um, uh, again poses another great question where you want to find out more. And it makes you think, or it certainly made me think, the architecture, the way they've set things up in this is actually very fastidious, very nicely done because we do have this business at the start before we know of uh, Frank's presence in the past. The last time I was here, during the war... Yes? Something happened, but I can't remember a blind thing about it. And now it looks blindingly obvious. Oh, OK, that's going to explain how come he can be in the past and doesn't know that this is going to happen, etc., etc. That's quite neat storytelling, isn't it? Yes, and there's, there's lots of um, kind of quotes that, um, you know, set this up. What happened? Anything? There's a black. A complete ruddy black. Um, I, I think they, they did a great job in kind of building up this, this moody atmosphere and giving you a sense that this just wasn't just any old abandoned naval base. There was something strange about this place. Well, let's um, develop that thought because there's a, we've, we've talked a lot about the kind of the quasi-science underpinning this, but I think also from this episode, it also feels, in fact, maybe even more so like a story kind of steeped in folklore than science. Because as you say, there is this um, this girl at the, at the very start who disappears and they have what was a great staple of 70s telly at the time, which is a, 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 a kind of a drunken yokel who witnesses it. And is the, yeah, it's the kind of the unreliable witness. But there was a, there's a lovely moment, I thought, where he sees her disappear. There you go! And he walks up to, to the spot where she disappeared. And it's at the point where he sees her handkerchief discarded on, on the grass that he then gets really frightened because that's the, the thing that actually makes it tangible. Yes, something did happen here. But what's your feeling then about... There is a folklore aspect here, isn't there? The wind, the rural elements. Yes, we've decided to go on a gypsy caravan tour while Liz is off school. Young Simon Randall's coming with us. You've also got um, a sort of uh, a scene with them in front of what... Um, I, I guess you would have quaintly called then a gypsy caravan or something, which they say... Straight out of a musical comedy. There does feel feel like there's some sort of folk element running through this as well, that, that sort of strange things happening in the country. If we talk about the time barrier itself, uh, I mean, it's a very... Um simple special effect it's simply split screen they pass through now i felt that the show slightly missed a trick because when liz and simon pass through it they vanish it cuts to another scene um, when do you hope to get away mr skinner it then cuts back to them it must have fallen through or something and where they are it's night time now if that scene had followed immediately on, you would think, gosh, it's night where they are. But instead, you just think, oh, they've been there for a few hours, I guess, and, and now night has fallen. That seemed a storytelling mistake to me. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's right. There's a kind of panning shot in the dark of the kids on the other side of the fence. Mm. Um, and you're, you're right. It, it, it does... Um, they, they haven't quite transitioned smoothly enough to to get over the sense that... It, you, it would have been much more dramatic if they'd gone from day to night. 
hard science does kind of kick in at the end, we have the, the realisation that the personnel in this Navy base are working on radar. And that is almost the revelation that ends the episode. It's a weird way to end, or, or isn't it? Is that something that would have engaged you with sort of smashing some, some radar stuff now? You know, um, radar was obviously incredibly important um, in, in World War Two, but in the context of time travel, I sort of thought, what? You know, um, where, where's that going to take us exactly? Um, so I, I didn't see how that was going to lead to time travel, although may, maybe it was through J.W. Dunn and his theories that, um, uh, that, that, that there was the connection. I'm not really sure. I wish I knew more about J.W. Dunn now that you've mentioned him. Well, the series does then go on to posit that time streams can be parallel. And I think as you were picking up there, Liz's mum, Jean, um, she has some kind of telepathic link. And actually, she's able to communicate... Uh, with Liz from 1970 back to 1940. And there is this idea then, I guess, that time streams can be parallel. Does that feel like a reasonable concept? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I always think it's a cheat as well. Because it's, it's, sort of, it's, it's sort of denuded the whole excitement of, of time travel, doesn't it? If you can still basically pick up a phone back to the present I, day. I, I agree. And it, in fact, it just reeks of all the kind of fascination with spiritualism and so on you know, many decades uh, beforehand. Um, so, um, again, that makes me wonder why on earth, um, if, if that was the central conceit, why on earth the, the ITN, the highly respected ITN science editor was introducing it in the first place. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure I would have done it when I was the science editor of the Telegraph. What would you have done about it then? We, we you know, we've, we've danced around this a little bit before, but... You know, they come to you. I think there's there's nothing wrong-headed about this endeavour, is there? I think it's um, they're trying to make a good show. They're trying to make sure it's kind of it's got some solidity to it. And they say to you, Roger, here's the script. Can you just um, set this up scientifically? Would you have more gone down the route of you know radar? You know, the the safe stuff, or might is there something you could have done that would have tickled the esoteric elements of this? Um, I. I suppose actually thinking about um, what was in the ether of the day, which is a fascination with all things space, the mm. thing that does strike me is that um, people don't realise the there is a deep link between science fiction and um, our obsession with space, in that, you know, if you ask the question, why did the Soviet Union and the Russians beat the Americans into space, you know, with, with Sputnik and Gagarin and the wonderful Tereshkova, it's because um, of the Cosmist movement um, in, in Russia in the, um, in the late 19th century, where they became obsessed with, um, you know, going beyond the world and the world being sort of exhausted in a way. Um, and there were people like Tsiolkovsky and so on, who were really beginning to think seriously um, about space travel and so on. And so I suppose I, I would have given a slightly gentler framing and said, actually, um, you know, the, the early cosmists were in, inspired by the likes of Jules Verne and so on, and they really wanted to explore beyond Earth. And there were, uh, I seem to remember, you know, trade shows in Moscow in the 20s about space exploration and so on. And so while um, in America, you know, they're thinking about taming the Wild West and all that, you know, the Russians no. were actually quite obsessed with space for a very long time indeed. So there was a sort of inevitability, I think, about them uh, getting Gagarin 
aloft and so on. Confirm the opening of the space age. So I think I would have I would have just explored this fascinating link between science fact and science fiction. You can see this again and again, you know, in, in contact, Carl Sagan's uh, movie, um, he wanted a plausible um, means of interstellar travel, and Kip Thorne, who's since won the Nobel Prize, came up with this wormhole concept, you know, highly speculative, but it was based on, um, uh, you know, on hardcore science to explain how you could get, uh, you know, from A to B. And it's, it's fascinating that Kip Thorne was very involved, you know, with Interstellar. So I think there's always been quite an interesting thing going on between science fact and science fiction. So maybe I would have framed it that way. Well, children's TV in the UK has historically always been underpinned, I think, by an educational ethos. And time slip um, over this story and, and the subsequent stories goes on to look at things like cloning. Commander Trainer, tell me something. Tell me why we should want to preserve life beyond its natural span. None of us want to die, my friend. And global warming. What year is it, Beth? 1990. 1990? Where are we? England. Where else? But it's jungle out there. Mmm. Darkest Buckinghamshire. Um, and I wonder then, did TV of this type have any influence on you, do you think, on where you are today? I think it's quite difficult to unpick everything because I, th I think, for me, Apollo was the, the magical moment. And I still remember looking up at the moon and sort of not quite believing that there were two people uh, had either just been or were standing on, on the moon. Um, and clearly, at the time, you had good old Doctor Who and, um, you know, in the set later 70s, you had Blake Seven and, and so on. Um, and I, I love the, uh, the, the early vintage um, Star Trek and still do... Um, today, and I, I, I do. It did to me anyway. Feel of quite a golden period of of sci-fi, and in these shows, particularly in Doctor Who, the, the, it's gone through waves of uh, of having more scientific rigor. And that's block transfer computation. Well, it's a way of modelling space-time events through pure calculation. And then it it kind of uh, veers into whimsical uh, years. But as a viewer and as someone who's in this industry, does it bug you if you're watching sci-fi shows and the science is a load of old rubbish? Oh, that's such a hard one. I think it does in a way, actually, because I really want... Um, uh, I, I guess I, I, I respect hard sci-fi more than just sheer fantasy because I think having the constraint of thinking, how can I make this plot work? But, but that's probably because I'm such an um, absolute science nut... I much prefer it when someone's riffing on real science and showing me where it could take us. You know, if you look at, say, Back to the Future, I think what's interesting about that is that um, they didn't really go into how they did the time travel. Um, the great thing is that, as I say, it's not banned, despite... Stephen Hawking's best efforts. You, you can still time travel, in theory at least. And they very neatly 
went through, it's a great riff on the grandfather-grandmother paradox and these, these headaches of causality that it, that it causes. The encounter could create a time paradox, the results of which could cause a chain reaction that would unravel the very fabric of the space-time continuum and destroy the entire universe. So I thought actually that was a great example where um, there was a very uh, sort of tentative grounding with real science in that science hasn't banned time travel and they did riff on what causality meant in a really wonderful, entertaining way. Theoretically, then, Roger, let's 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 get you off the fence here. Are you pro or against time travel? <laughs> <laughs> I always want to limit you to a one-word answer. I don't want any vacillation here. I'm, I have to admit, I'm anti-time travel. Oh no, <laughs> pro causality, anti-time travel. It just causes too much aggravation. So, how did watching time slip? this episode fit into your day did it did it cheer you up was it was it a bit of a drag was it fun i found it fun i have to say um in in lockdown um i've been uh writing thousands tens of thousands of words about covid 19 yeah yeah, i i really enjoyed this little bit of escape this bit of time travel back to the 70s as I say, if I had a, a little, if I wasn't writing so much about COVID at the moment, I'd love to follow up that episode one and see, see what happened, uh, you know, in, in season one of Time Slip. And you mentioned your 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 COVID writings; they're much admired. And I wondered for you then, is there some emotional comfort in a way in being able to engage so deeply with the science of this pandemic? You know, well, there's people like me who are kind of floundering around in. Ignorance. Is there something nice for you that at least you can have this kind of core understanding of things? Is that helpful to you emotionally and personally? I, I must admit, I feel a little bit guilty about the whole thing. And, and by mm. that, I mean, um, you know, I've spent decades, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, writing about pandemic risks. Yeah, I think in the 90s, I wrote a long piece about how our increasing incursions into natural ecosystems make these so-called zoonotic diseases, you know, where you get an animal virus jumping into the human population more and more probable. Uh, you know, wrote a lot about swine flu uh, and so on. And in fact, I was um, on a government quango that did a wargaming exercise looking at how the UK could cope with a pandemic, which was fairly um, mind-boggling at the time. Um I suppose I'm lucky in that no one close to me, people close to me have had COVID, but no one uh, fortunately has, has died of COVID. Um, and so in a strange way, I feel like I've spent, um, you know, decades thinking about the theoretical possibilities of a pandemic. And there's a kind of grim fascination in seeing how it's all panning out. And uh, I think the one thing that's that's come out of it is that, um, even though um, uh, I'm not sure the government's going to come out of this particularly brilliantly, they they did put a they have put a lot huge amount of money into scientific research. We've got perhaps the biggest drugs trials on the planet. We've got a couple of really interesting vaccines. We've got some of the most amazing efforts to look at the genetic code of the virus and track it through populations. Um, so uh, yes, I'm I'm completely fascinated by it, and I feel a bit guilty for. for for, for that fascination, if that makes sense. And we're talking um, in early June right now. How how are things panning out in comparison to those war games you did? Did we do better theoretically or are we doing better in, in the real 
a situation? Well, in the in the war game, um, you you could see um, you know there were there were issues about distributing drugs if there were a drug, you know, and sort of army vans trundling down streets and people throwing. You know, one one of the things you learned very quickly was you couldn't if you'd naively thought you're ill, therefore you go to a GP or a hospital, that actually wasn't a good thing to do because you found your hospitals fell over very quickly. Um, we got a glimpse of national factors in that at that time, uh, the influenza vaccine was grown in chicken eggs. And I think all the suppliers at the time, I hope I'm remembering this right, were American. And it became clear that if, if uh, the US was confronted with a supply issue of course they were going to vaccinate the US population before the UK population you know we were trying to truncate a whole pandemic into you know a day's exercise um i think at the moment it is a slightly worrying time for me because um you know we perhaps i mean the estimates vary hugely but but maybe of the order no, no more than 10% of the UK population has been exposed to the virus. You can argue about how many people have died, but let's take the official estimate of about 40,000 people. It's obviously a lot higher oh. than that. And to reach herd immunity um, without a vaccine means you've got to expose something, you know, of the order of 60, 70% of the population. So I think we're still in... Um, uh, you know, in a tricky spot, as someone said, it's a bit like, you know, severing an artery, and you've got your, you've got your hand over the bleed. But I mean, you know, it's uh, that that's a short-term solution, but it's not really a basic solution to the problem. So I think I think I'm, I have to admit, you know, slightly uneasy about the relaxation of lockdown at the moment. We will know within ten days of change of the measures whether there's a surge in hospital admission rates, and we'll know when it comes to the R number and mortality, you know, within three or four weeks, whether uh, it, it's they've, they've managed to transition to this new normal or whether they've got it mm. wrong. And for you, in terms of your your day-to-day -day and things that you need to do, how is that working out? Is that kind of all working out reasonably well? I think I'm going mildly bonkers. I'm not <laughs> sleeping very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I do miss, um, I mean, the, you know, the, uh, in the Science Museum, there's a, a huge amount um, going on. On, on. You know, in a normal day in the Science Museum would be meeting a lot of people, um, you know, evening events, launches, you know, events in the IMAX and things like that. Uh, obviously, none of that's happening at the moment. Um, so uh, I, I think it's just the fact um, that... Uh, everything's taking place, it feels like, in my bedroom at the moment. <laughs> it's a bit monotonous. Thank you, Roger, for watching Time Slip, and thank you for talking to me about it. Now, stay indoors. Mm.